0: It's not every day you get to talk to a former CIA spy. This is my conversation with Andrew Bustamante. We talk about pain and endurance. Welcome to episode 166 of the Training for Ultra podcast. If we could just free ourselves of our perceived limitations and tap into our internal fire, the possibilities are endless. I'll tell you about it when it happened in the race, but to be honest with you, it happened even before the race. It happened in the training. great cause... Oh, thank you. I it that, man. So keep doing, do it, man. Keep us For all you kids out there, stay safe and stay strong. Hey, everyone, it's the Train for Ultra podcast. Got Jerric here. I was physically totally wrecked. I, I had nothing left. I figured I might as well move as quickly as possible towards the finish line if I was going to be moving towards it anyways.
1: How do you even? if i could you know finish a 50 miler, i could probably run across the country 100 miles is not that far
0: and if you haven't already check out patreon.com training for ultra to help support the show and just really appreciate everyone subscribing and just enjoy the episode i really appreciate it All right, I'm really excited to speak with Andrew Bustamante, previous CIA spy, and I just think no one's talked about the topics I'm dying to ask him about. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Where you have uh, Everyday Spy, right? Is that your website and business? Yeah, everydayspy.com is my website. It's also the name of my business, and I host the Everyday Espionage podcast. Uh, you can find me pretty much anywhere. If you just Google my name in CIA, uh, it's funny, but it wasn't until after I started Googling my name that I realized there really aren't a lot of CIA officers out there you can Google. So it's kind of cool to be the one that you can find.
0: He has a great podcast, and I think all of his episodes are applicable to business, life, and endurance sports. So um, let's start off. I want to ask you about pain. You of all guys, you probably spent time I'm trying to remember the field I think is like the very initial CIA kind of boot
1: camp and yeah, the farm. Yeah, exactly. The farm, the farm. Yeah. Yeah, the farm um, but but you're right. Pain is such an such a important and powerful topic for me because we learn to live in a state of different levels of pain and I myself am an endurance runner. I've only run one technically one ultra marathon. It was only 32 miles it doesn't compete to the guys out there running 100 or 200 miles plus like yourself, right but we have had to learn and the CIA trains us systematically how to embrace and cope with pain, both acute pain and chronic pain um, and for those of you who don't know the difference, acute pain is temporary pain. Um, and chronic pain is long-term pain. So in the world of chronic pain, like 72% of Americans suffer from chronic pain. And then acute pain, some ridiculous number, like 85% of all people experience acute pain at some point in, uh, in any given year. But those two types of pain become the foundation for all of our pain tolerance training.
0: You're in a unique position. This is like a rare crossover where you've had such elite level Best in the world CIA training for dealing with pain, but then you've also run a 50k. And mm. you happen to be one of the only ex-CIA guys that's willing to do interviews with anyone. So <laughs> I'm very thankful here. But walk, walk us through 101 pain, because I've read okay. some of I, I read an article you wrote, um, and it was kind of blown away at your mm. understanding of pain. Like, can you walk the the listener and the viewer through what is pain, how you've been trained, and then
1: kind of next level synthesis of those? Yeah, absolutely. Know. So, yeah, so a lot of people make, a lot of people make the argument that pain is mental. And to a certain extent, that's, that's right. But it's too elementary of a description. Pain does exist in the brain. That is true. That is where pain begins and ends, is in the brain. but what actually carries the pain is electronic, uh, electric signals that go through your various nerve endings. So if you look at the human body like a giant roadway map, right, pull out your nearest Atlas or Google map or whatever you want, the, the fingers, your extremities, your ears, your nose, your toes, your legs, all of those nerve endings are very thin nerve endings. The further the, away they are from the spine. By the time you get to the spine, the nerve endings are much thicker. So just like a road map, you've got all these little neighborhood and residential roads that go to a main super highway, right? So what that means is that's why you can touch things with your fingers all day long, and it's never too distracting. It's never too painful. You have to really hurt your fingers. You have to like tear them open to really hurt your fingers. Where if you get like a small scratch under your armpit, or if you get some kind of uh. uh Uh, irritation on your nipple from from, uh, boogie boarding in the ocean, it becomes really painful, right? It's because all of those nerve endings are thicker and closer to the spine. So when you're thinking about pain, you've got to recognize that whatever body part is feeling the pain, how thick are the nerve endings in that part of the body? And then as the pain travels from those nerve endings up the spine and into the brain to a part of the brain called the somatosensory cortex, the primary somatosensory cortex, that's exactly how pain travels through the body, from the nerve endings into the brain. Once you kind of figure that out, there's all sorts of techniques that you can use to slow down the signal, to distract yourself from identifying the signal. You can actually bring pleasure to a part of your body that's closer to the superhighway that dampens the pain from a a place further away all these different techniques and tools that you can use in the field. If you have anything from like a knife wound or if you're suffering from even hunger and then this uh, similar techniques that I actually use when I was in my own ultramarathon race in Thailand in the extreme heat to keep myself moving forward instead of focusing on the pain.
0: I mean, you, you wrote that there's some X amount of miles within the human body of like what, could you explain that aspect?
1: Um, yeah, it's yeah. There's there's. I think it's tens of thousands of miles. For some reason, I feel like it's twenty five thousand miles, ninety thousand miles,
0: or something. There crazy, it is.
1: Thank right? you. Yeah, tons of of mileage when it comes to the length of the nerve endings in your body. So when you think about the electronic signals and how far they have to travel, it's a long way. And there's multiple different types of nerves that they have to travel along. There's there's uh, like A nerves or A delta nerves, I want to say they're called, and C nerves, and these are different types of nerves that carry pain at a different speed and a different level of intensity. So when we run, and over time we start to develop soreness, right, or pain. If you've if you've ever run an ultra marathon and you know the the knee, the knee pain, the hip pain, the throbbing pain in your joints, in your large slow twitch muscles, the cramping, the, the um uncontrollable kind of seizures that your muscles start to go through. That's all C-level pain. That's all like deep throbbing pain that's carried on C nerves. You can work that out slowly. A lot of people have their tricks with what they eat, what how much they hydrate to kind of cope with preventing the pain, but there's all sorts of techniques you can use to also just reduce the pain in your mind, tolerate the pain in your mind. But then you have that really acute pain that comes from pokes and, and penetrations and slashes and that kind of stuff that's carried on very intense nerves, A-nerves that, you know, demand almost full attention. All of those are just, they're they're all, they all make up that, that network of roads that 90,000 miles worth of nerve endings in your body so explain the crossover
0: how what aspects of your training um that you know have been time tested um, mm. probably part of a book of some sort have been you've been able to utilize when you ran a 50k like were there certain mental techniques or were they more physical techniques
1: for dealing yeah. at that pain it's a little bit of both and I'll just kind of give a quick synopsis of how you can use it, right? So the first thing to keep in mind is that your brain has has to prioritize functionality. So if you dis, if you focus your brain's functionality on something other than pain, it's in it is intentionally limiting the amount of receptors that can find their way into that somatosensory cortex. So as stupid as it sounds, if you start doing hard math in your head, you're going to reduce your pain. It's, it's hard at first. It takes a little bit of discipline at first to keep yourself focused on something else, but the pain will reduce. And a lot of times if, you, if you've if you ever noticed that you turn off a TV show and then you're like, "Oh man, I don't feel very good, right? Or whenever you're sick, what's the first thing everybody does when they're at home feeling sick? They turn on a show because that it distracts their brain. It's, it's impulsive. You're, you're overwhelming your senses which means your brain is reducing its, pri- its, its resources to focus on the pain. It's focusing instead on what it sees, what it hears, right? Um, if, you're, if you're eating something strong with a strong flavor, what it tastes, what it smells, you can do that on your own intentionally by thinking about math, by thinking about what direction you're going, or by reflecting on memories with family, or thinking about the race or your race plan ahead of you. Right. I remember when I was like rounding mile 24 on that ultra marathon, all I was thinking about was like my next, like put the next foot in front of the other foot, right? Put the next foot in front and doing check ins, constantly checking in with, you know, what are my hips doing? What are my knees doing? Am I collapsing too far on my knee? Checking in with different parts of my body. And all that helped me to do was not focus on whatever part was hurting. So you can always direct resources mentally by thinking about something specific forcing yourself to think about something specific, not something general and delivering those, those cognitive resources in that direction. Physically, physically, what you want to do is you want to focus on areas or you want to think about areas that feel good, right? Where, where's my body strong right now? Where, uh, what's the temperature, what's my hydration level, these different elements that allow you to still re still direct some of those cognitive resources but it keeps you from leaning into the, the painful part because your body's going to want to compensate physically for whatever physically hurts. You got to keep yourself in the best physical, efficient um, structure. So the way to do that is to kind of keep focusing on what's strong, strong posture, strong shoulders, you know, strong breathing. I'm not having cramps in my sides right now. I am having cramps in my sides right now, but my neck feels good or my head feels good, whatever. Everybody knows that horrible feeling when everything hurts, there's always something you can find that feels good.
0: So, because you were a field agent, um, or operative, were there certain standards that were expected of you? Like was there a mile time that you had to run or you get cut? Like as weird as that sounds. I I'm clueless. Whatever you there's can actually- share, I don't I don't want to I don't want all my Gmail accounts hacked.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's actually different physical standards for the kinds of operations that you participate in. So, in large part, there is no physical um, base foundation requirement for what's known as a case officer or field officer or field operative. We have them all across because the agency needs a very diverse workforce that can take on a large, broad cross section of cover identities. Um, with different backgrounds, different physical ailments, even mental, uh, even mental handicaps. Right there is a very forgiving standard to being a field officer. But to be a field officer that does paramilitary work, to be a field officer that does uh, joint operations with with Special Operations Command in the U.S. military, to be a, uh, a field officer that specializes in relationships with foreign countries and their special operations forces now those standards start to roll in right now they want to find out how how fast is your mile time what is your push-up time what's your uh, vo2 max you know how what's your mental uh stability levels right advanced psychological testing testing that they'll that they'll run on you how do you multitask right let's bring somebody to a maximum point of artificial stress by putting them through physical demand and what's known as uh what's known as task saturation Let's saturate their cognitive functions with uh, complex physical and mathematical and whatever else uh, challenges. And then on top of that, test their decision making to see if they're able to balance the complexities of deep cover, prolonged periods of time in high stress situations and hostile environments. There's all sorts of cool testing that goes into who does what kind of operation.
0: I mean, I, I recommend Moab 240, just have someone... <laughs> Give you you a few questions at each aid station. No crew. Um,
1: Run 240 miles. We'll test you at each aid station. It's Uh, true. I (laughs) when I went through when I went through some of my initial training with the Air Force because I'm an Air Force Academy graduate, and some of my initial pilot training was no kidding—just running half a mile or three quarters of a mile from one place to another, and then completing a mental task, a puzzle, a math problem memorizing a line from a poem or something. It's super difficult to be both physical and cognitive at the same time.
0: Yeah. It, it gets really sketchy after like 48 hours, um, trying to make decisions with sleep deprivation. Um, yeah, and, and we'll talk about
1: that more in a minute here, but, uh, we're, so you, were you in Colorado for a while? So my school, I graduated from Colorado Colorado Springs. That's the Air Force okay. Academy in Colorado Springs. Okay. And then I spent my first year as an Air Force officer also in Colorado Springs. I've still got good friends, and we still have every intention of the world of going back to Colorado because it's it's a state near and dear to my heart.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful place. That's, that's awesome. So what other training uh, for pain specifically, like, did they – did they test you at extreme altitudes or, um, just other painful situations? I mean, I know probably interrogation type training. So you didn't divulge things like I want to hear more about how I can utilize CIA real training for my next ultra marathon.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, you would be surprised, uh, There's not a lot of value in forcibly causing pain in a training scenario. And a large part of that is because of injury. Um, So when what they're focusing on really is teaching us what's known as pain tolerance. And there's a difference between pain tolerance and pain threshold. And if you can relate to the idea of endurance, pain tolerance is more like endurance. And what they really, what CIA is really focused on in their field operatives is maximizing their capacity for endurance, Enduring long periods of time in pain, discomfort, um, sleep deprivation, starvation, uh, prolonged dehydration, that sort of thing. So we learn to cope with the physical pain that's caused by any of those scenarios, right? If you're in Pakistan, and you're in a prison cell with no windows in the summer, it's gonna be completely different than if you're in the Philippines in a prison cell with no windows in the summer, right? Um, Some places you have to worry about insect bites, other places you have to worry about uh, extreme dry air that that sucks up your water faster than you can replenish it, right? So they focus a lot on how to cope with the physical pain, but the bigger focus is on, on the discipline and the mental hacks that go into endurance enduring that pain enduring that discomfort and maintaining that endurance until a blacked out black hawk helicopter can come rescue you covertly at night that's
0: that's fascinating i mean what specifically with sleep deprivation have you learned that you can share because sleep deprivation once you start running beyond 100 miles is a huge issue hallucinations are very common Um, I've seen my fair share of those over time. Um, but how, how do you stay with it? How do you not like enter that period of like essentially blacking out and
1: sharing, sharing things you shouldn't be sharing? Yeah. So you, you, to a certain extent, you actually learn to embrace what you know is coming. So when you're, when they sit you in a seat under a blazing hot light, and you know that you are now in the custody of, you name the interrogation service, at that point in time, there's a couple of really relevant facts that you can accept. You can accept you're not going home anytime soon. You know that for sure. Could be 72 hours, could be 70 months, for all you know. You have to embrace the fact that there is no help on the immediate horizon. And the second thing is you have to know that you will run out of physical resources. Your body will run out of the resources that it requires to operate at full capacity. So you have to go into a conservation mindset, a mission mindset that's conservation-based rather than operating at full capacity. And that can be really hard when you're fighting against endorphins that hit you and tell you, holy smokes, I can't believe I just got captured. So one of the first things that we're taught is you've got 90 seconds to escape that means in 90 seconds, you will either be free or you will be in custody. If those 90 seconds go by and you're in custody, there is no reason to even continue the fight. Unless you are in an area where you have leverage that you can actually exploit to somehow beat the odds of capture, at that point in time, you need to just accept the case, accept the situation as is, and then start to Uh, conserve your resources and find an alternate opportunity to escape in the future. To identify that opportunity in the future, you must be with it, right? To use your terminology, you have to have cognitive resources available. So what we're actually trained to do is accept a lower state of uh, of cognitive condition, of cognitive functioning. We start to systematically shut down thoughts that have to do with anything other than the here and now, don't think about the future, don't reflect on the past. This is not the time to start thinking about how did I get here? How am I going to get out? It's time to start thinking about what am I doing right now? It's almost like a meditative state.
0: I was just going to ask that. Yeah. It seems like that along with breathing techniques to slow your heart rate to then alter metabolism and blood flow, Everything it all optimizes, right?
1: Yeah. You start thinking about what's known as a trance state. We talk about it as a trance state and you put yourself into as close of a trance state as you can focus on what uh what your body is doing or something that your body is feeling you can do something as simple as tapping your skin or touching fingertips this is something that yogis have known for a long time that we don't learn until some you know some gri- some grizzled old you know delta person teaches it to us but just by touching your fingertips you create a sensation that allows you to put energy into that sensation and now all of a sudden it can become almost translate if you are just tapping your finger your middle finger against your thumb that's those are all simple things to keep you in the here and now conserve mental resources so that you can just you can ex, uh, significantly exponentially extend the the ability that you have to fight off something like sleep deprivation because you're not using 100% of your resources 100% of the time you're using 20% of your resources which is going to almost quadruple the amount of cognitive ability you have in the course of a normal day
0: i mean don't tell anyone but every single running photo you'll see you'll see me uh doing something very similar trying to put myself in that i mean trance like meditational state to just remove my mind from the physical discomforts of running stupid distances
1: exactly um, yeah. what's what's interesting about your experience rob is that it took you hundreds of miles of experience to learn the hack, right? You've had to learn it What's not like on the job. You've been in the line of fire figuring out how to shoot the gun. We get, we get put through a course that conditions us, here's how you do it. And then it, what you learn over the course of two years, we learn over the course of two weeks. And then for us, it's just a matter of practicing it. For you, it has become ritual. It has become the thing you turn to after you cross mile ten or twenty or fifty, I want to hear
0: about how
1: running. And
0: by the way, I'm jealous of that fact, but I'm glad to have found it regardless. Um, it would have been much easier taking a two week ultra running marathon course and be ready. Um, how How has running been a part of your life when you're under extreme pressure as a CIA spy? have you incorporated running throughout that journey, the seven years that you spent serving as a, as a spy, Um, or was this just on and off or did you use as a stress reliever?
1: Yeah, exactly. So running has become a core element of my life. I was a runner before I ever joined CIA. When I joined CIA, it just made things that much easier. Um, Running is like a great equalizer. One of the things that we also learn at CIA is that all people are primal and at their core, in their brain, regardless of education, culture, ethnicity, religion, every one of us is still a primal creature at our base layer, our base level. We have survival instinct, we have fight or flight. And one of the things that running is really a powerful tool to do is to put us in touch with that instinctive primal nature. That's why a lot of people feel like they have their best ideas running. It's also why some people hate running. They hate running, not just because it's uncomfortable, because like instinctively, they feel like they're fleeing when they're born to fight, right? So it's, it's always, it's different how it touches different people. But for me, running has always been this fantastic way of simplifying my world. The whole world becomes a matter of steps and breaths, and that's it. And sometimes that is hard enough, just stepping one foot in front of the other and catching my breath to fight some side cramp or whatever else might be happening. So, no matter what's going on in the world, coups, capture threats, right? Whatever it is, uh, you're healing from something, right? Mental or physical. Running simplifies the world down to just you and Mother Nature. That's as primal as it gets. And then when you come out the other side, whether you have a good run or a bad run, you come out the other side having accomplished something because you've pushed your body in a way that it wouldn't have been pushed had you sat on the sofa. And you that relate that experience makes it so that you can immediately relate to other runners. And other runners know what it's like to walk around and not be able to relate to many people because a lot of people don't have any interest in running. Because they don't want to accept that primal nature. They're trying to pretend there's something else. We are all at our core, primal. It's what's That's what CIA counts on to get people to become traitors and people to become heroes. If you're not primal, then you're simply lying to yourself and you are vulnerable to the kind of tools that we're taught to use. So were you able to actually put in regular miles like every day or every oh, week, every day? So Oh, yeah. When I was when I was at CIA, I I always made it a, a priority to live as close. Well, not as close as possible, but but within a a six to 10 mile radius of wherever my physical workplace was, whether it was an undercover workplace or an overt workplace so that I could run to work or bike to work, run home or bike home. It was always a priority for me because that was a fantastic way to start the day, clear my head before I had to make operational decisions, or to decompress, decompress on the way home before I had to essentially like maximize my rest and recuperation time before the next day. And that, and running is just a fantastic way of indexing information. The brain only has two functions it's either absorbing information or it's indexing information. If you have your five senses engaged, you're absorbing information all of that information that comes in has to get indexed or it has to be lost. And the only way you index information is by simplifying your thought, your thought patterns and getting them to a place as close to theta as possible. Sleep does that meditation does that. And running does that. That's fascinating. And so what was,
0: you know, during your, your spy work, what was your longest training week in miles? Like, do you do you think you ever put in 100 a hundred mile week?
1: I, I so, know I put like, it in as this, a CIA spy. I know I put in 100 a hundred mile week as I was That's as awesome. I was preparing. Yeah, as I was preparing for the ultra that was in actually it was in Phuket in Thailand in 2011, and it was the the first and last run where I ever raced a professional race and took and placed. So I ended up winning for like winning prizes from Colombia who hosted this race. Um, and it was the only thing I've And it's only because I systematically kept pushing through the pain while all of the international racers eventually like fell out. Right. That's not because I was fast. It was just a battle of attrition, <laughs> but yeah, um, You're building when I was hundreds, by the way, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, training, training for a race like that. I mean, it's really standard to build up right from 10 miles to 20 miles to 40 miles to 70 miles, you start building up and then you start ta- uh, tapering off again. So on the front end of that build, you can hit 100 miles. On the back end of the tapering, you hit less than that. But I mean, it didn't feel good. But it was one of those things where I knew that if I could run, if I could run 70 miles in a day, for sure, I would be able to run 30 miles in a day, Um, even though it takes a ton of prep work and pain tolerance on its own to get through a massive run like that.
0: I mean, I'll I'll end with I've heard that some of the absolute best athletes in the world can't show up to ultra marathons because they don't want their name associated with these like elite level endurance feats. Have you heard that before? Or am I just I, I've talked to a few guys, I think the Air Force actually. They were like they have this military games where you get a taste of some of the off the. Record type athletes, but then the world that you're in, God knows what's taking place
1: in terms of athletic feats that are just totally black, black ops. Yeah. So, one of the things too that is really interesting to me is that you're elite athletes in the operational world. So, when I think of operations, I think military operations, uh, clandestine operations, even uh, Uh, professional athletes all run their own kind of operation, right? Whether they're football players or divers or swimmers. We we live in a world of operational utility. We do it because we have to do it. And to do it, we do it to the best of our ability because we have to do it. But endurance runners, endurance athletes, and, and endurance swimming, endurance cycling, endurance running, you have a whole different reason for doing it. It's because it puts you in touch with some part of your of your physical and mental being that you can't be in touch with otherwise. And that's when I was at the Air Force Academy, I had a good friend named Peter Euler. And Peter Euler was the person who introduced me to extreme endurance sports. Peter, when he was 20, 20 years old, our junior year at the Academy, he signed up and completed the Leadville 100 race in Leadville, Colorado. And he spent months training for that race. I remember him running 50 miles or more on one day over the course of a weekend to get himself up to that that Leadville 100. And the days that he would run those those runs by himself, I thought it was crazy. I was 20 years old. I was chasing, you know, the next tail that I was looking for. He's out there training and I wasn't until I was much older that I realized he was getting in touch with a part of him that I needed standardized like government training to get in touch with. You endurance athletes find their way to that peace of mind. They find their way to that that clarity of thought in a way that operators just we don't value it. And that's what makes the pain worth it. I know it's not easy to recover from a 240 mile race. There's no way you're up walking around and going to get a cup of coffee the next day. You're caring for your body to bring your body back to a place where it's able to function normally. And then you're lining up to do it again. So that's a whole different mindset. That's why you won't see operational minds, operational athletes, operational uh, military, or even elite tier one military ever sign up willingly to do something like that. Because the thrill of what they're looking for isn't at the finish line like it is for you. I,
0: I think that's a beautiful way to end the conversation. Maybe endurance training and, and runners could actually give a few lessons to you guys. Um, but yeah, your your lessons are invaluable. And I highly recommend checking out Andrew's podcast, check out his YouTube channel. And this is just a teaser. He's He'll be in town at some point. We're going to sit down, have a beer, hopefully. I, I don't know if you drink, but. Do um, it. Beer or bourbon, your choice. And I'll start off with beer, um, <laughs> just so I can keep <laughs> up. But uh, we're, we're going to have a, a extended conversation, another podcast episode, YouTube video. So I'm, I'm just really excited to have the opportunity. Thank you so much for you know taking your time and being so open to ultra trail runner you know, reaching out and uh, having conversations. So where can people follow you on social media?
1: You'll find me at Everyday Spy on whatever your favorite social media platform is. I'm not as active as I probably should be. I spend almost all of my time talking directly to my uh, newsletter, which you can subscribe to my newsletter at uh, everydayspy.com and building new podcast content that's powerful and impactful. And you can find that at Everyday Espionage, uh, the Everyday Espionage podcast.
0: I appreciate it. We'll, we'll be
1: collaborating, hopefully, here in the future. Stay in touch, and uh, thanks again for joining me. My pleasure, Rob.
0: Take care, brother. And that was episode 166. I hope you enjoyed it. Big shout-out to Andrew for taking so much of his time. Big thank you to Exoskin, Patreon, and all you guys supporting the uh, the show. I really appreciate it. Consider subscribing, and I'll see you guys next week. Thanks.